one of the greatest acts of heroism is to sacrifice one's life for someone else. In fact, Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And it's, it's one thing to, to talk about laying down your life for someone else. It's a whole other thing to actually do that uh, when the time arises. And Dawson Trotman is, is one such hero. Dawson Trotman was known by his friends as Dawes, and he was born in 1906 in Arizona, and he died at the age of 50. But as a young man, he was saved and discipled when he was working in the lumber yards on the coast of California. And as he was discipled, it, it sort of clicked for him. He, he, he caught a vision for this life-on-life -life discipleship, much like what we do in our D groups, our discipleship groups, where you have small groups together that are, that are praying together and that are studying the Word together and memorizing Scripture together and, and pushing one another and holding one another accountable in their walk with God. He, this became real in his life. And so he began to, to do this in the lives of others. So he, he had a young man that was a, a sailor there in, on the coast of California in the U.S. Navy, and he began to disciple him in that same form. And later, the, this young man brings someone else to Dawes and says to him, hey, I want you to teach him what you taught me. And Dawes turned to him and says, you teach him, right? I mean, I, I disciple you, you disciple him. And so he began to disciple him, and Dawes began to disciple other people. And before you knew it, there was 125 men on their ship that were being discipled. By the end of World War II, that had multiplied out to be thousands of sailors on ships and bases all around the world that were being discipled. This was the beginning of the Navigators Organization. That was the, the group that Dawson Trotman founded. And he became involved with other evangelical leaders in his time, such as Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade for Christ, and Billy Graham, who would obviously go around the world and, and preach crusades. And they were all interconnected at this time. And Dawes was often asked to go and to speak at, at youth camps. And so it was at a youth camp one summer where he was in upstate New York, and they were out on a lake on a boat going out skiing. And they began to hit some choppy water, and he and uh, a young girl that was there at the camp were knocked overboard. And he lost his life holding her up above the water so that she would survive. Billy Graham spoke at Dawes' funeral and said of his last act of heroism, Dawes died the same way he lived, holding others up. I want you to know today that Jesus died holding others up as well. He gave his life to atone for our sin. And it wasn't just for a, a single person, however. It was for the sin of the world. And Jesus is the answer to our sin problem. But so often we find ourselves in this idea that we can try to make amends, we can try to atone for our sin ourselves. But why would we seek another answer when Jesus is better? If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 5 through 18 as we continue our series through the letter to the Hebrews. 
This series is called A Better Hope, and today's sermon is entitled A Better Man, which is what Jesus had to be. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you'd stand in honor of God's word if you're able. Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 5, the word of God says, For he is not subjected to angels, the world to come, that we're talking about, but someone somewhere has testified, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time, and you crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus, made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I'll proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I'll sing hymns to you in the congregation. And again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. But now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it's clear that he's not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. Thank you. You may be seated. Today, as we take this passage of Scripture and we want to apply it into our hearts and into our lives here in 2022, the action step for us today as we leave this place is this, that you would confess that you need Christ that you would confess that you need Christ. And so when we look at this passage of Scripture, there are two points that I want us to to see as we dive into the Word of God, and that is that we have an infinite problem, but God gives us an incarnate plan. And so let's begin by noticing the infinite problem that we have. If you look down at the end of our passage in verse 17, the Bible says, Therefore, He had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, the word atonement that's used here by the author of Hebrews is the word propitiation. Some of your translations might say propitiation. And this is a a, a big theological word, but I don't want you to get hung up on that. I want you to understand it because it's important, this word propitiation. It, it, it means a payment. It means to appease God. And so there's a, a price that has to be paid. There was, there was an offense that has to be rightly satisfied. Imagine if you and I were in court today because one of your loved ones was murdered And there's the defendant standing across the way, and you're there because you want the judge to cast a proper sentence for this defendant, right? 
You want him to, to, to give a sentence that's appropriate. Justice demands it. Right demands it. And that's the idea behind propitiation. It's, it's that there's a just price that has to be paid for what's been done. The justice of God demands it. His justice has to be satisfied. One of the songs that we sing and we're going to sing here at the end of our service today is In Christ Alone. And the lyrics to that song, it says, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's propitiation. That the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. That's the idea of what the author of Hebrews is, is telling us here. That the, the price that we're talking about is for the sins of the people. He had to make atonement, in verse 17, for the sins of the people. And that's because sin is a vile offense. It's disobedience against God, against our creator. It's rebellion against our sovereign king. It's a rejection of God's plan for us. And that's the problem. In fact, it's an infinite problem because all men have participated in this sin against God. And it's an overwhelming problem because it strikes at the very heart of who we are as human beings. You and I were created to know God and to love God. We were created to have fellowship with God and have a relationship with God. And sin severs that relationship. And so we're left broken and hurting and frustrated and hopeless because of our sin. Sin ruins everything. And our sin has a price. Say that your neighbors are out grilling in the backyard. And there's this accident, the, the grill tips over and it catches everything on fire and your house burns down because of what happened. This is bad, right? And so your neighbors come to you and they say, listen, we are really sorry. We'd like to mow your grass for you for the next month. I mean, that'd be ridiculous, right? I mean, nobody thinks that that payment is sufficient, it doesn't satisfy justice. Those are insufficient funds. And so you remember when we said that the offense had to be rightly satisfied. Well, God has named the price. He named it back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, where he told Adam and Eve, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's the price. The cost of our sin is death. Romans 6.23 says the same thing. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we can't do this ourselves. Because anything that we try to do on our own to pay this price comes up short. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, the prophet says, All of us 
have become like something unclean. All our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. Some says filthy rags in some translations. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. He says all of our righteous acts, everything that we think that we could bring to God are like a polluted garment, unworthy, unsatisfactory. And that's because we're not holy like God is holy. Romans 3.23 tells us all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God, of the holiness of God, short of his standard. And so can we appease the righteousness of God when we're dirty and sinful men? No. Whatever we bring would not be enough. Valentine's Day is coming up. A lot of you are probably expecting that your spouse is going to have a nice Valentine's dinner, take you to a nice Valentine's dinner. What if he says to you, hey, I was out in the back parking lot at Wallace and I noticed a taco laying on the ground. It might have been run over by a car, not sure, but hey, five second rule, right? You know, I mean, what, what, if, what if that's what they said? That would not be good enough, would it? We can't appease the wrath and justice of God for our own sin, much less anybody else. There's no mortal man who can stand in the stead of all the sinners of the world. There's, there's no way that I can pay the price for your sin and for your sin and for your sin and for your sin and for your sin. I can't pay the price for my sin. And so to be able to satisfy the punishment of God's wrath against the sin of the world is going to take somebody greater. This is an infinite problem. It requires a better man. So in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Paul writes that God presented him, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. The word, therefore, atoning sacrifice, same word, propitiation. He presented Jesus, the Father, presented the Son as the propitiation, which means that his life was enough to satisfy the just payment for the sin of the world. In fact, this was the only way that the wrath of God could be assuaged. One author says that, Jesus knew that if there had been any conceivable way whereby God could have redeemed the world other than by the horrible death of his son, then God would never have resorted to such an expedient. He knew that there never could be any other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. He knew there was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. None other could open the door and let us in. Jesus knew that if those dear ones whom he had left were to drink of the vine again with him in the kingdom of God, there was but one way. He must drink the cup of God's wrath. He had to do it. And so if we are united with Christ by faith, that's what it says in Romans 3.25, God presented him as an atoning, as a propitiation in his blood received through faith. If we're united in Christ by faith, then our penalty is paid in full. But if we are not united with Christ by faith, then you're going to suffer the consequences for your sin. 
for eternity in hell because the price for our sin is death. So I want you to hear me today when I tell you that you have an infinite problem. Your sin separates you from God and there's nothing that you can do about it. Because any sacrifice that, that we bring isn't holy and righteous and pure because we're not holy and righteous and pure. And so if you're trying to just live better, that's not good enough. If you're trying to do this on your own, that's not good enough. If you live a more moral life than everybody else that you know, that's not good enough. You have to confess that you need Christ. You need him. Which brings us to our second point this morning. We have an infinite problem, and so God gives us an incarnate plan. He made the way for our sin problem to be remedied. This infinite problem needed an infinite solution. It needed a better man. This is not something, he says here, that angels could accomplish. In verse 5, he says he's not subjected to angels, the world to come, that we're talking about. It had to be a man who could identify with man, who could stand in the stead of men. Angels don't understand how men are created in the image of God. It's a mystery that they long to look into. But verses 6 through 8, it says, Someone somewhere has testified, What is man that you would remember him or the son of man that you would care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time, but you crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. You see, it couldn't be just a man because he doesn't have the power to do it. I mean, why would God even consider men? It's, it's because he loves us. He made us in his image to know him and to have relationship with him. And so that's why God became man. He became Emmanuel, God with us. Made a little lower than the angels for a time and then exalted and crowned with glory and everything subjected under his feet. In verse 9, he goes on to say, we see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. And the theological term for this is incarnation. It's another big word, but it's an important word that you know it. Because incarnation means to put on flesh, to incarnate, put on meat, to put on flesh. And there are two sides to the incarnation, that Jesus is fully God and that Jesus is fully man. And both of these are important in the incarnation. You see, Jesus had to be fully man so that he could stand in our place, that he could be our representative. He had to be like us. In verse 14, he says, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. And so the necessity of the incarnation is described right there. One commentator writes that the salvation inaugurated by Christ is accomplishing creation's original purpose. Jesus, as man, fulfills God's original intent for man in Genesis 1. So in other words, Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. He does what Adam was supposed to do but failed. And so Jesus comes as the better man. 
J.D. Greer explains it like this. He says, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from a tree and died. But Jesus obeyed God, climbing on a tree and willingly dying for us. He took the bite of the serpent, the poison of the curse, so that we could be released from both. And so for Christ to accomplish our salvation, he needed to suffer in our place. He had to pay our debt. That's why in Luke 24, verse 26, Jesus asked, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Wasn't it necessary, it asks, that he did this? The answer is yes, if he was going to stand in our place. Verse 14 and 15 of our passage says that through his death, he would destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and he would free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So Jesus put death to death through his death and resurrection. Through faith in him, we have victory now over death and over sin and over Satan, and we are set free because of what Christ done. And so this This victory is ours because Christ paid the debt for what we've done and our disobedience and our sin. That's atonement. So Jesus had to be fully man, but he also had to be fully God so that he could stand in our place, in our place. Because if Jesus were merely a man, then he'd be a sinner just like us because he was a son of Adam. But Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. And that's how Jesus can be holy and righteous and without sin. It's because he's God. And so in order to be a sufficient payment for the sin of the world, he had to be God. Only an infinite God could satisfy an infinite problem. Only the blood of the Son of God would be enough. For the sin of the whole world. Romans chapter 5 verse 19 says, Just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. C.S. Lewis says it like this, The Son of God became a man so he could enable men to become sons of God. That's what Christ did for us. For you and for you and for you and for me. Verse 16, it's clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. It wasn't for the sake of angels, it was for us. And so in verse 18, he goes on to say, Since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. I want you to understand that in your hearts this morning. That because he suffered, When he was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. God isn't some far-off God who can't relate to you. Who's so far away that, that he doesn't even care about you. He became one of us. And when you read the Gospels, you see how he felt exhaustion and he napped on a boat. 
that he, he felt the loss of a loved one and wept, that he felt betrayal but washed his betrayer's feet. He felt physical pain and cried out, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He felt temptation in the wilderness and overcame. You see, you're not going through anything that no one else could ever understand. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. He says your temptation is common to humanity. There's nothing that you're going through that's like, no one else can know this or understand this. There are others in this body who can walk with you and help you. But more importantly, you have a Savior who can walk with you and help you. Because later in Hebrews, in Hebrews 4.15, it says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so it's not just that he can be sympathetic with what you're going through. He can be empathetic with what you're going through. And that's because of this incarnate plan that he became like us. And he died for us, holding others up. He gave his life to atone for our sin, not just for a single person, for the sin of the whole world. And he's the answer for our sin problem. And even so, we try to make amends. We try to do things ourselves. We try to figure out how we can make it right. But why would we seek another answer when Jesus is better? And there are men and women and boys and girls that are in this room right now who need to take the action step that we mentioned at the beginning of the service to confess that you need Christ. You know that you have this sin in your life. And today we've clearly explained that the price for that sin is death. And that's a big problem. It's a big problem for you, for me, for all of us. Except that God had this plan where he would send his very son to become like one of us, to stand in our place, to suffer for us, to die for us, but to be raised again so that through faith in him, we can be cleansed. We can be forgiven of our sins. We can be reconciled to God, have that relationship with God that we were created to have. And some of you are missing that this morning. You go, oh, you don't know the hardships I've gone through. You don't know the things that's happened in my life. You don't, you'll never understand. Oh, he does. That's exactly what it says here. That we don't have uh, a, a high priest that can't sympathize with us. This is one who has suffered when he was tempted. And he's able to help those that are tempted. He's been in your shoes. But he walked perfectly there. And that's why he can be your savior. And today he's calling on you. Even right now, the Holy Spirit is, is tugging at your heart, saying, come follow after Christ. I want you to know he loves you. He wouldn't have done this if he didn't love you. He wants to have this relationship with you this morning. And so in a minute, we're going to have a time of response. There's going to be leaders standing here across the front. We're going to stand, we're going to sing, and and this is your chance to come and to say, I need to make that step today to, to confess that I need Christ to be saved. 
Christians this morning, as we think about this passage of Scripture, the action step for you is the same. Every day we need to continually confess that we need Christ. Christ isn't just the beginning of our relationship with God. He is our relationship with God. And we need to confess that we need him every day. Every day I'm tempted. Maybe it's just me. But I bet you're tempted as well. But here we are. He suffered when he was tempted and he's able to help those that are tempted. We have, we have one who was there, here, just like us, who walked in our shoes but did it perfectly. And he's able to help. He's able to guide. He's able to strengthen. He's able to be with you every day. Confess that you need Christ. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll confess that we need Christ to save us, and then we're like, well, we'll take it from here, Jesus. I can do the rest of it. But you can't, and I can't. We need Christ every day. And so maybe you want to pray there at this altar or there at your seat, confessing, I need you, Jesus, today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. But however God is at work in your heart this morning, now's the time for us to be doers of this word and not just hearers only. Let's stand with every head bowed and every eye closed. God, thank you for your word. We're thankful that Jesus became man in the incarnation so that he could be the propitiation for our sins. Lord, we had an infinite problem, Lord, that we couldn't solve. There was nothing that we could do about it. But in your mercy and your grace and your love, you sent your son to save us. So today we praise the name of Christ. We worship him. And God, I pray if there's any here that, that don't know Jesus, that have not put their faith in him to save them, to forgive them of their sin, that today they would come and call on Jesus and be saved. God, for Christians this morning who've already made that decision at one point in their life, Lord, today they would realize, recognize that we need to confess that we need Christ every day in order to follow you. And so, Lord, help us, speak to us during this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.